All right, here we go. I'm gonna give us a sync. There we are. What's up, man? Hey, man. All good. What uh, what are we gonna do? We're gonna talk about identity. Exactly. All right. The building of the self. The building of the self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I- identity and selfhood, mm-hmm. I guess broadly. Yeah, I think probably gonna put a more emphasis on the um, on the social self. So yes. what's the relationship of building an identity and navigating the social landscape? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess there are, there are aspects of selfhood that are that are physical, and I guess maybe we'll get into a bit more of what selfhood means as a broader context beyond social self. Uh, but probably we will focus mostly on on the social individual because I think that's probably the most relevant. Yeah, and uh, that's that's the helmet, that's the kind of uh, topic that we can relate to uh, also real world uh, phenomena. So things that we can see in the news uh, or surrounding us, and um, we can probably explain or understand better when we understand how identities are built and what's their purpose, function, and uh, what's involved in that. Yeah, for sure. So I guess we'll start with, we might have slightly different definitions of selfhood. Um, for me, it's it's the beliefs that we maintain. So I take the identity of the individual to be the output of the sum of the beliefs that we have. Mm-hmm. And that the beliefs are, are all prioritized relative to one another. So this includes uh, not just our social beliefs, but our physical beliefs, including how we navigate the physical space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I see it as like a mutable hierarchy of of maintained beliefs. Mm-hmm. But how, how would you define the self? Well, I never I never thought of the self in a very um, in the very physical realm of it or on a very individualistic kind of perspective in it. So I'm, I probably have been always thinking about the the social self, especially because I think that the the self exists because of the social. For me, it's a it's a it's a schema for uh for um somehow an imaginary agent. So in the same way that we build schemas for other agents uh, around us all the time, even agents that do not have any evidence to exist, we also build a schema for an agent that is ourselves. And uh, this schema just help us to to interact with other agents uh, surrounding us. So how do you how do you define the uh, schema in this case? Maybe actually. Yeah, probably. Probably I. Now, now I'm primed by what you said. So, but I, I would I would definitely I would go with the 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 bundle of beliefs, perhaps. Bef- hmm, perhaps if I if I haven't heard you saying that, I would go with. Probably. Um, Kind of a, a of a, perhaps not so much algorithmic, but just uh, some 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 form of a brute categorization of expectations. So, just um, kind of like a format of a little bit of format of a input output. So, if if this happens, what's the outcome of it? 
what in relation to what a person should be. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I guess the the way I see beliefs is that they're information about information. So, as the individual stores information, the, like basically the learning process. As the individual goes through their environment, they begin learning. They accumulate those learnings as information about information, and they adjust their anticipations to match the environment better. So, I guess in that sense, that sort of a lot overlines with the uh, with the schema idea. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm to- totally comfortable with what you said as well. Right. Actually, um, as I said, as I said, I think I never, I never went to the to the very individualistic I- idea. For a while, I have been thinking of identity as a pure social construct. So, for, for, uh, from my perspective, there is no way, or there is no function or reason to build an identity. There is no reason to separate you, even from your physical environment, if there is no other agents to interact with. So you have to have, uh, you have no. That's not what I meant exactly. There is. <laughs> There, there, it's not that there is no reason, but the 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 primary way to do it is by is by comparing yourself to what you are not. So you need other agents, and if the environment is an agent, you would have to compare yourself with the environment to say the environment is this, and I'm not this. So therefore, I am something else, and the same thing with the. So yeah, it's a. Um, that's that's how I would go about it. Yeah, I think with the with the social self, that's really important, right? There's this sort of recognition and meta aspect, the ability to recognize and distinguish myself from my environment, myself and other agents being part of the environment itself. Mm-hmm. I think that the the concept of identity for me, in order to create something cohesive that stretches beyond just the social identity, is the ability to interact with. Uh, or rather perceive elements of the environment that aren't necessarily, um, don't necessarily require awareness. So, and I think we've, we've discussed this example before, but when a single-celled organism reacts to something in its environment, it, it has a certain output in that there's information into the system via the edges or the boundary of the, of the cell, and it uses that information to either move towards or away to some from something, so uh, it it has an ability to react to its environment. Mm-hmm. So it has something like information stored about information. Mm-hmm. And as long as you define beliefs that way and don't require a metacognitive aspect, then a bacterium has beliefs in this sense, in that it just stores information about information. You don't need anything like a reflective or aware component. Obviously, a bacteria isn't aware or doesn't have any any capacity for awareness, but they clearly do store information about information. And part of that, one element of that is is something like DNA. But another element is just you put bacteria and a couple of drops of chlorine and the bacteria will move away from the chlorine. I mean, it's just in the most simple sense. So it, it doesn't have the ability to recognize anything, <laughs> um, but uh, it does have the uh, capacity behaviorally to distinguish between itself and its environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then then we have to make the disti- we have to make the distinction about the the sole distinction and the actually self-recognition. Mm-hmm. So when that, where does this come from then? When does it emerge? Yeah. So what's, what's the, the, what's the, what's the red line? What's the, the boundary on being just reactive 
and just storing information about the environment and saying, well, there is a distinct, well, there is a distinction between me and the environment in terms of of recognizing the source of the information that keeps you alive eventually, and actually saying, actually having a recognition of, um, well, if I if I know how to answer that, then I would have been answering my own question that I posed to you actually. What's what does make it our idea of self different than the bacteria? Yeah. So the, I think this is where it's it's easier to think about it as a gradient. Uh, I don't. There's one there's one way to think about it, right? One way to think about it is that there's free will, and that at some point free will emerges. We hit this critical threshold, and there's something fundamentally different about different in kind rather than different in degree about human cognition. And I don't think that's the case. So I don't I don't ascribe free will to us. I don't think that there's a difference in kind between what we do uh, or our capacity to navigate our environments and what bacteria do. But I think there's a drastic difference in degree, meaning that there is nothing magical that happens between uh, the, the evolution point, that critical evolution point where humans have this phenomenon uh, of apparent self-awareness. I don't think something magical happens and that all of a sudden we have free will. So I would say that there there are things, and I don't have an explanation of this, and maybe at some point humanity will have a better explanation, but how going from something uh, single cellular to simple multicellular organisms to something really complicated and dense like the human mind, or just the human agent rather, um, is you you create something like the ability to to perceive in a phenomenological sense. So there, there's a there's a somethingness to our experience that's, that's difficult to quantify. But then also there's the ability to recognize ourselves. And I don't think that this is produced by some special different capacity, but I do think that it emerges from just how densely collected uh, all of this information about information is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember a paper now, actually. Don't remember the name, the authors was um, I read it on my master's, but it was just basically, I can put up on the notes, um, just a differentiation between uh, different degrees of self-awareness. So there's, a, there's a, for what I remember, there's a, um, agents that have a body schema. So for example, um, a cat or a dog sees a whole and they kind of know that they can pass through that hole or not. So they have an idea of what their body boundaries are. So, so, and they can work with that. They can cognitively work with that. They can use uh, this, this, this self-awareness. There was a self-image and that's the, related to the mirror test the, that um, uh, we can talk about, but uh, it seems like that some animals are recognizing themselves in the mirror and we don't know until which extent that means that they look at the, this image and, and recognize something that like we recognize. And then that it would be like a third stage on, they say, um, I don't, I, I, I cannot paraphrase the, the paper, but then would be something above the, the, the only the, the self image awareness um and basically yeah kind of like a homuncular idea of there is a me living inside me 
And I think that's 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 why we are uh, talking about of um, there's something different about what uh, we consider ourselves uh, in this sense. But uh, uh, this homunculo, this thing that lives inside me, that is not exactly me as uh, a, a, as only an agent, but me as a something else. I don't know. Yeah, I guess the the way I think about it is that. So I think a critical concept is something like proprioception, the ability to recognize you, the parts of your body even when you can't see them. Mm -hmm. So I know that my hand is behind my head right now, and I know I can actually touch it with my other hand without looking at either hand. Mm -hmm. And so that I think that's quite important. The The thing is that the, um, the ability for a single cell to react to damage and say, okay, well, the damage is coming from the left side, you know, if we have if we have a single celled organism on a plane, uh, the you know the damage is coming from the left, so I will uh, move away from it, right? And then also uh, a deer doesn't need to think that's my left foot; it recognizes the damage and it moves the part of itself away from the damaged area, right? And so I think that that pain signals are fundamental to our ability to navigate. Our environments. I, the single-celled organism doesn't have a a threshold or a phenomenon of pain, but has the ability to detect damage. And as the as these organisms become more complex, a messaging system to recognize damage becomes crucially important to the to the organism's survival. And what we get in we'll just stick to mammals from this point is it's very complex nervous system that's di distributed throughout the entire body that's basically an information highway to detect pain. Mm -hmm. And a lot of a lot of experiments looking at uh, social pain, social damage, are also, it seems like the the mind is tapping into this pre-existing resource of, a, of an information superhighway throughout the body to also create not just the sensation of pain when, pain when there's uh, physical damage, but also pain when there's something like a social damage, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an important point is that you can recognize your body, react to, to that, but then what you can also do, and I think this is the, there's that third stage you're talking about, which is the ability to recognize myself as extended from my body. And I don't think any, any animal other than human beings can do that, which is my ability to see uh, someone else and interpret speech and symbols and understand that that is uh, damage done to me socially. I think probably other complex social animals can interpret that to a degree, but we have such a complex network. And this is why I think it's just a difference of kind, uh, uh, rather a difference of degree rather than kind, is that other social animals can interpret that damage to their in-group is damage to themselves. There's some kind of ability to recognize, oh, my troop is being destroyed, this is... I need to react. Uh, and I think built on top of that is the human capacity to say, oh, my friends uh, have ditched me and now I feel ostracized and alone. My social group has collapsed. And I think that we do feel, there, there's good evidence to show that we do feel something uh, like physical pain when that happens. So you think the pain is the, is the source of identity? I think pain is the ability for us to recognize the detection mechanism. I think that it's built off the back of pain. I think that the if we don't have the ability to react to our environments, 
then obviously we can't function anyway. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the remarkable thing is we can interpret things that aren't damaged to our physical bodies and feel, have this biological affective incentivization mechanism to be socially included. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting thing is that any individual who doesn't feel this um, incentive literally built in to your physical form uh, via the nervous system to be included would not have survived. And I think that that's probably as close as I can get to an evolutionary argument mm-hmm. for why we uh, might have evolved something like a very complex social awareness and how it might might have come about, not not distinctly in the sort of nervous system, the brain-body system, but as something that's built off of what's already there. And the main thing that's already there is... is the system for pain. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think, yeah, it answers a lot of questions. When we're talking about some species um, exceptionality and humans, very often what happens is that we get to a point and where we talk about how different our social world is. So, um, again, the difference between us and other animals might not be this either qualitative or quantitative, but rather an intermix with what is the environment on which we are putting in, in, in we are employing the function of the cognitive capacities that we have that might not be so different from other animals in the end, but it's a very unique social, it's a very unique environment. We really rely a lot on each other and it would make sense that uh, we would evolve on the direction of exacerbating um, reward, punishment mechanisms uh, related to anything that is social, including building self-identity. Um, animals definitely feel ostracized if they are uh, highly, highly socially complex animals. And, but some extent i think it's hard to compare well without well excluding the ill-social animals just to yeah let's keep to primates it's hard to to see other primates that are so reliant on 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 the group as we are and uh, it makes sense and in the other token if if you are avoiding pain you could just, as you move this line towards increasing pleasure, you would start to to see the same kind of phenomena in a, in a, in the a, as a mirror of itself. So we would have positive incentives to 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 build identity uh, within the social environment. So if we if it seems that if we do certain things or if or if our cognitive process allowed us or lead us to do certain things, we are rewarded by our social environment, then we we follow along with those with those uh, behaviors and uh, tough processes. Yeah, I think that you're touching on an important point, which is the thing that I that I typically argue for is that there is a affective. Um, phenomenological gradient, meaning that 
not to reduce all of emotional experience to just one single dimension, uh, but I think that there is a core dimension that you can draw through all emotion, emotional experience, which is the positive-negative valence. And I think that this is really critical and that the same way that you can draw one line that is the best line of fit in any amount of data or just think about the single line you draw through an hourglass, which still extends in three dimensions in a multiform way. I think emotion is something like that. Uh, but there is still a single line of positive and negative valence. And I think this is the core fight or flight approach or um, flee sort of reaction that every every animal has for its own survival. Mm -hmm. And I think that humans have built this very complex, and to some extent other uh, other mammals as well, but have built this very complex emotional framework to deal with a whole variety of issues that have a great deal of nuance to them. But one of the, the, the core factor driving all of this is, is it positively valenced? Am I gonna benefit from this, receive pleasure? Or is it negatively valenced? Am I gonna see, receive pain from this or damage? And I think this is one of the, one of the crucial things we have to think about when we think about how humans have built such a extraordinary capacity for, for social navigation and really depth of complicated feelings when really uh, at the end of the day is uh, the question is, am I being validated or am I being damaged? Uh, am I being attacked with this particular uh, social interaction? But we also build beliefs of what is rewarding and what is uh, a punishment, right? So, but it seems to me that not all culturally, socially built. So, we could make a distinction of what is actually a um, biological reward or a biological punishment, and. What else did we invented that is not exactly what it is? Yeah, for sure. I, I, this is a, this is a crucial point. Is this is highly contingent upon our beliefs, and we don't have direct access to manipulate or change our beliefs necessarily, right? In that, this is where the this is the most important point of not believing in a free will is that the the information in and the environments that we interact with are what update our beliefs, we don't, even if we feel like we're actively chasing something, it could, my perspective is that the thing driving us towards actively shaping that thing is something that we don't have control over. So the motivations are something that we don't necessarily have control over. Uh, but these guide us to have the, the, the feeling, the sensation that we might have some kind of like freedom of choice to change our beliefs. But with something like uh, the positive effect I might feel from eating when I'm hungry, I, that's just physiologically built in. We don't even think about how that makes us happy. It satisfies a physical sensation, thirst, hunger, things like that. Um, but then you have something like uh, getting getting a hug from a good friend, right? That's validating, it makes us feel good. There's a whole chemical process that's going on in your entire body when you are hugging someone or when someone says, this is a really great idea, or you're great, you're the best, you're the, this, this type of validation provides, there's no belief that I need to have about, no, sorry, awareness that I need to have about the belief. I, it's just programmed in that validation is good for me. Um, but I can have a lot of nuance there where if I'm getting praise from someone I don't like or someone I don't trust, I can mitigate that. So the beliefs can basically con conflict. 
they can make me like somebody I don't like. I can say, well, I thought this person wasn't that great, but now they've given me something uh, validating, and now I might like them. I think that's how a lot of uh, cult leaders uh, function, right? Is praise, 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 and then when they think you're God, then you can kind of do whatever. Um, but I think this is something to be aware of as we navigate our environments is what are our beliefs when we go into a space and then what are our beliefs when we walk out of a space? And sometimes they can shift drastically based on very simple, sometimes uh, flippant uh, sort of things, inconsequential. Or they can seem inconsequential to us when we think about them, but they're actually changing how we behave. Mm -hmm. What do you think would be the core? Um, what would you think that, it, it, well, what is not belief? What Man, is the physiological, social? This is a layup question for me. This is, yeah, the, for me, the, the, fundamental, the fundamental thing that, that all agents do is uncertainty mitigation. So they are, they are anticipating their environment. I think this is the core thing that biological agents do. And the, the error accumulation and anticipation is basically the amount of uncertainty that they're experiencing. And I think that uncertainty mitigation is um, the, the intention, in a, in a formal sense, the intention to reduce the entropy in an environment. In a colloquial sense, it is the desire to resolve the uncertainties in the environment. So basically, the, the distribution of the possibilities would be something like a very high degree of entropy because there, there are a lot of possibilities, each which are, say, have an equal probability. That would be an extremely high entropy state. Uh, if this table could suddenly turn into an orange, we'd kind of be fucked. But we, we mitigate a, a lot of this by creating you know, stable environments. We're not on the ground floor of this building, so, but we're not worried about falling through. So we've mitigated all those, all those physical uncertainties. And we also know that you know, the red light is on here showing that we're recording, so nobody's going to walk through. We've, we've mitigated a, a whole bunch of uncertainties. And we do this on a day-to-day on a -day basis in everything we do. But I think also animals, uh, all, all biological life is basically trying to do this, is um, match what they believe versus what they perceive, which is match the information that they have about information with the new information coming in. Mm -hmm. So a, a bacterium doesn't perceive anything as such, but it does, it does have the ability to interpret incoming information, and then it runs that through the existing information it has stored. And so this, this, uh, any potential incongruence between what's believed and what's perceived, you can take that as the, the quantifying measure, the definition of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it's clear for any everyone listen to, but I think what one wants to say is that we don't like when we don't know what's gonna happen. Or, Man, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, hey, you can you can make it cognitive. I don't even think it's it necessarily needs to be uh, something that you're aware of. It can be sort of this at the cognitive level mm. sub your awareness. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to translate as as straightforward as possible. <laughs> we don't like uncertainty. But, you know, this is, but measured uncertainty is also something that we get. Here's the most interesting thing, right? And this is kind of touching on why I've, I've been really interested in learning, active learning, curiosity, information search, right? Mm -hmm. Is despite the fact that we don't like uncertainty, there is a threshold of tolerance that we have that actually we get rewarded for maintaining a small amount of uncertainty. Mm. This is a really interesting thing. Curiosity is saying, I have a, a 
moderate amount of uncertainty that is manageable for me and chasing that moderate amount of uncertainty is actually validating which is how which is how individuals can actually learn anything we don't try to mitigate uncertainty entirely mm-hmm. it's mitigate most of uncertainty and hover at this very small amount of maintained uncertainty which is why we leave the house at all mm-hmm. if we if we wanted to mitigate 100% of uncertainties we'd lock the house never leave just get a stockpile of food but what most of us do is we leave the house because there's something else not just for survival but we leave for engagement there's some some amount of uncertainty that's pleasurable and here's the thing here's why we might want to learn if if say i'm in i think most people experience this with their mathematics education if if i'm experiencing uh an amount of uncertainty which is tolerable because i also receive validation and i'm able to explore the curiosities then i'm maintaining a, the right amount of uncertainty to be able to get fulfillment from that mm-hmm. if that uncertainty reaches a higher amount meaning i'm threatened with bad grades i receive no validation the teacher is going too fast um then the uncertainty reaches a certain threshold where it goes from pleasurable to to displeasurable very quickly mm-hmm. and i think this is the important thing that we have to keep in mind and maintain when we're when we're navigating our environments another good quick example is when i'm on a roller coaster there is uncertainty mm-hmm. but the moment that uncertainty goes from pleasurable to unpleasurable is when the person next to me flies out of their seat mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. if their head gets chopped off it's no longer fun but right up until that point it's very fun but there is uncertainty mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i don't know from from my from from my own perspective uh, well well to begin with scientists would not exist if we didn't if we didn't like to 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 try to f- Well, we are mitigating uncertainty, but we are also moved by curiosity and trying to find out when we start an experiment, we have expectations, but we have no idea of what actually going to happen. Otherwise, we wouldn't do an experiment for that, right? And it seems that most of human history it's moved towards uh like it's moved by people who were trying to discover at the same time mitigating uncertainty and at the same time being open to what actually can what actually can happen so if you if you would be if you would just conform to the state um the just this unchangeable state that you are in you would never as you said get out of your house and yeah I don't know it make me it make me think that is is it that is mild the amount of uncertainty that we can uh tolerate or is just something on a individual basis that's like high, people that are highly uncertainty uh seeking and others are not so much and then within a population you just create this gradient maybe these the people who are uncertainty seeking are just like a small proportion of a bigger population and then those people probably are the ones that are actually going to find out uh including like including the bad stuff right including like well if you if if you if you're not avoiding uncertainty and you are a hunter gatherer and you're going to try all of the leaves that you can find around you you're definitely going to die but other people are going actually to benefit from your death because they they're going to learn that okay so we should not eat that so yeah. maybe in the population level uh it could be something that would make sense that we always would have like 
perhaps people that are very motivated to to seek the unknown and uh, others or the majority would not. Yeah, I, you definitely you definitely hit on an important point is that the threshold of tolerance for uncertainty is like everything else, a gradient, right? Differences of degree among different degrees of difference. And this is, it's important because we have people at both ends of the spectrum in our society. We have at the extreme end of uh, low tolerance for uncertainty, we have people with a, a lot of phobias. Mm -hmm. So if you have somebody with agoraphobia, and usually that's that's accompanied with a whole bunch of other other conditions, other phobias, other fears, they probably aren't going to leave their house. So that that is an amount of uncertainty mitigation where the threshold is very, very low for, for their tolerance. But then you have people who are at the very high end and they are uh, also a minority of the population. So you have this sort of mm -hmm. even distribution, maybe even maybe even that the amount of people that take more risks is larger than the amount of people who take zero risks. I think probably... Okay. It might be a balance like that. I couldn't make a case. It's just more of a hunch. But it's definitely it definitely follows something akin to a normal distribution in that most of the people are somewhere in the middle mm -hmm. and then you have the extremes. But yeah, like you said, we need people who are trying stuff. We, I think a lot of every extreme sport was only ever invented by somebody who has a high threshold for uncertainty. Um, new methods for doing things. Every, every person who explored uh, any type of terrain or any novel environment all those people had a higher threshold for uncertainty. There were most of the people who said, I'm going to stick right here. And then there was a small fraction of people who said, I'm going to go explore this thing. Okay. So, yeah, coming back to the identity, but now you got me confused because is it uh, is mild threshold for tolerance of uncertainty or is it a normal distribution within a population? Oh, no, it's, it's all a small threshold. Like mm -hmm. even, even explorers don't have that high of a threshold for uncertainty, right? They're... Think about it this way. Most of the things, uh, even when you're exploring something new, you're still controlling most of the things. Mm -hmm. you know, you're, not, you're not eating a new leaf and jumping off a cliff. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. it, there, there's still a tolerance threshold. Like when you are getting on a boat to explore the ocean, mm -hmm. you're still making sure that the boat is good. Mm -hmm. right? You're not l trying to sail on a log. That would be a very high threshold for uncertainty, and those people die off pretty quick, like you said. I mean, there's no... There's no way to uh, have a very high threshold for uncertainty and survive. Mm -hmm. But within this, this range of low tolerance for uncertainty, there is still a range. Again, differences of degree among different degrees of difference, right? Like this is that it's not just that there's a degree. It's that there's not just that there's a gradient, that there's a subgradient. And at the lowest end of that, of the main gradient, there's a little subgradient where there's a normal distribution, right? Um, and, and I think that, that that's just really important. So in the case of identity, we are mitigating uncertainty when we are building it, when we are unconsciously or, yeah, like unconsciously, let's, say, let's use the word, but uh, we are mitigating uncertainty. So we are trying to predict our social environment by affirmating the person that we are, the agent that we are, the beliefs that we have. So we're trying to, we're trying to hold up to the beliefs that mostly put us on the position of knowing what's going to happen on our social environment. 
Yeah, I I think that we build we build a this sort of socio ecological niche. This social a niche meaning like a a small segment of the population that we can inhabit as individually as possible that manages our social and environmental concerns. I think this is this this idea of building a socio-ecological niche is really important understanding how identities come about. Because we want to be individuals, but we don't typically want to be so different that nobody understands anything about anything we do. Because then you'd be too strange. And so we have these parameters of the types of identities you can build, and we don't need to necessarily be aware of this. That that awareness, that mitigation of uncertainty, social pressures, conformities, um, even even leaders conform, mm-hmm. right? So you have this this ability to to perceive when you are being liked or disliked, and that's a pretty that's a built in ability. So you, you come with that ability, and then you you use that to navigate your environment. Mm-hmm. There, so there are a lot of prevailing theories, like um, you have one called terror management theory, which is basically we have a. <laughs> It's very evolutionary, very reductive, but it basically says we all have a fear of death and social inclusion allows us to mitigate the fear of death, right? It's very, very straightforward. You also, and I can put links to these in the, in the show notes, um, you also have something called uh, sociometer theory, which is where basically trying to measure our, ourselves against other people constantly uh, and we don't need to be thinking about this it's not that we are constantly thinking about it it's just that passively in our awareness we judge our position in society uh, you have um, the uncertainty identity theory which is that we're trying to mitigate uncertainties you can basically see how all of these sort of overlap in that it's it's that you take an agent and as they navigate their environment they try to mitigate their uncertainties the idea of being included, that's one of our main drives. We're trying to mitigate the uncertainty of ostracism because ostracism might mean death. All of the theories about identity seem to point in this direction. Mm-hmm. I'm very sympathetic to all those uh, because what I argue for with uh, a hierarchy of maintained beliefs, the, the idea of survival, I think, is one of, the, one of the central beliefs, one of the most prioritized beliefs that we maintain. So... We have a belief that society engenders, allows for our survival. And I think that that's why most of our behavior is be included in the group. Mm. And what, um, and how that happened that we get ourselves to conform to the identity within group A and not group B? I mean, it, it should be an accident. Right, it should be random uh, that we end up being um, hold up. Like once you are in the group, and once you make the commitment with one identity, um, yeah, you're just moving away from 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 the possibility of switching because then you have the the social network on which you you are part of and you are arranged, and the thought of changing your opinion about anything that your group doesn't agree with, it's painful. But how how did we end up in that group in the first place? So part of it is definitely random, right? Dude, where you grow up, the, the consequences of your birth, of your upbringing, the body that you're in, 
right? All of these things play a huge factor and already determine a lot of the initial trajectory of what you're doing. Um, your, your assigned gender at birth, all of these things play a big role in how you're perceived. So the shaping that your social environment does of you is huge, especially in the first um, 18 years of your life, right? When you are very highly sensitive to information from your social environment, when you don't have uh, a robust social network regardless, you have first your parents, then your peer group, and both are trying to shape you. Uh, and this is, this is a, a large element of the randomness, right? And I think a lot of people who don't leave the, the towns that they grow up in, don't um, leave basically the professions of their parents, all those people, the, the people that they are is purely circumstantial. It's it's random in as much as their birth is random, right? But anybody who starts moving away from those things has different groups that they can move toward. And the thing is that we, when we engage with individuals, because we maintain so many beliefs, we have a very subtle way of integrating with other people. So I can share a large part of my beliefs in one domain with one person, one set of people, but then have a, another set of beliefs that I share with other people in another domain. And so as I'm switching between groups, I'm looking or, or leveraging beliefs that are prioritized relevant to that moment. And that, that's why there's a, a large contextual and temporal component to who I am, is because over time, the more I engage with some groups over others, the more those beliefs are gonna be more prioritized relative to the previous beliefs. So I'm constantly changing. Who I am today is very different from who I was a year ago, purely because it, it, it's a degree of difference, right? It's I'm more different from myself 10 years ago than I am from myself one year ago. And that's purely because of the environments that I engage in. But we can change. And I think one of the ways that we can change is that if we see that validation from one group is coming towards us more than validation in another group, then we can switch groups. Mm -hmm. And that happens. And I think that that can happen in a, in a gradient fashion, meaning I can move from uh, central left to left to far left, right? In this sort of very subtle way where the beliefs I'm surrounded by slowly change and I shift in a particular direction. This definitely happens with conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. But you can also have situations where people have uh, a crisis where they maintain for so long uh, a set of beliefs that are incongruent with the other beliefs they maintain. So you have this huge uh, set of incongruence and then suddenly their identity shifts entirely. Mm -hmm. Somebody left-wing becomes right-wing. Somebody right-wing becomes left-wing. Mm -hmm. And that, that's purely because when you, when you speak to people like that, they say, yeah, well, you know, I was thinking for a long time, I had belief A, B, C, D, E, this was incongruent with the group that I was a part of, but I had been part of that group for a long time. And I still believe, you know, X, Y, Z with this group, but it's just that more of my beliefs aligned with this thing and then they switch. And mm -hmm. you kind of, you have that thing happening. Uh, and I think that that's, that's something really important. And usually why those beliefs are changing are not so much the social environments that they're engaging in, but that there's something very relevant to what they perceive in the general environment mm -hmm. uh, about their, like take any, any politician who is anti choice or anti-gay rights and then all of a sudden they have a child who's queer and their beliefs change. It's not that they were in a, in a group where uh, they were talking about more liberal values, it's that they had a child 
and that child forced them to change the beliefs that they have purely out of self-interest. And I think that this is what happens when people have drastic changes. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't subscribe to many of those ideas. Uh, I, mean, I think I, I don't have to mention names of um, individual personality traits defining if you're going to be a Democrat or Republican. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, I know that you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I, I'm <laughs> you just know, keeping. I'm you know, just I really hate the all record. the personality traits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ne- neither. Yeah, you know that's my position as yeah, well. It's but, uh, but um, it's a little bit. It's not. It's not only on this helm that we hear um, the the arguments for types of people to, to kind of like. It's a deterministic idea of um, of identity, right? That they are people. That they are like that, and there are people that are not like that, and we can put them in boxes, and um, and that's basically how uh, that's would be the core of their identity. I think most of these authors would agree that they can build something around it, but uh, there's something there that is unchangeable, or I don't know something like that. But yeah, if you have any comments on that. Yeah, the I think there's a big conflation between the lack of free will and determinism. And before I started studying probability theory in a big way, I would also make that conflation. Because it seems like the idea that there is no free will is compatible with the idea of determinism. <laughs> and And in one version of free will, it is. But I think determinism is more compatible with something like fate. Um, which is that the end is written, uh, which to me seems absurd. But what I would argue is actually that in in every moment, what we have is a cascading series of probabilities. That in ev- every moment, the what we're experiencing as an instant is the collapse of the potential of of infinitely many probability distributions. So the difference between and these are the, the important thing is that they're they're interdependent. So I have very high probabilities that every atom in this table is going to continue to exist, and that there's going to be a table here. If some fraction of them don't, it the likelihood that is it is significant enough that I can pass my hand through table is very small. But the reason is not that we're taking every uh, every distribution on its own. It's that they're they're dependent. Their outcome is dependent on one another. And I think that's really important is as you create uh, systems that are more dense, they have even more information that shifts the probability towards very particular outcomes. So if I have, this is not the best example, but um, well, first, if you look at something like the uncertainty principle, um, it's measuring the state of a subatomic particle changes the state like produces the state that we are trying to measure. So there's something about the uncertainty of the lack of measuring. It It's a bigger topic than I think we want to get into. But the, the main thing is, is that we don't experience that same uncertainty uh, as individuals because we are so dense. There's an innumerable amount of subatomic particles that are making myself up. And that's, there's even a degree of variance in every instant, right? Of, of the ones that are making me up, things passing through me. There are things passing through me right now. Um, but the uh, by things I mean subatomic particles, right? I mean, the, but uh, the the idea that um, say if I'm going to flip a coin, 
if yeah again it's not the best but i think this this is a close one is if i if i flip one coin the outcome's 50-50 i can say there's a 50% chance i get tails 50% heads but if i'm flipping 1 billion coins simultaneously the likelihood that um i get say one head and you know 999,999,999 tails is extremely unlikely mm-hmm. right and so the the point is that i i'm by flipping so many coins simultaneously this is a bad example because they're not interdetermin interdependent but the probability distribution is meaning that there's a range of likelihood of outcomes somewhere between half a million you know plus or minus there's some deviation there that's the that's what we're talking about when we're talking about probability maybe this is too abstract um but hopefully that that provides some kind of usefulness to when we're talking about the the progression of things and the lack of free will we're not talking about determinism in that a produces b we're talking about trillions of a's uh collapsing in a given moment and then producing the outcome and the outcome is something like b there's a there's a high likelihood that things will carry on there's an inertia there in the probability and i think that that's really important maybe that yeah it's it's too abstract cuz it's too big of a concept but maybe we'll just tackle it specifically in another episode yeah yeah no definitely i think he actually remind me of uh, saposky um explanation i always i don't know i don't remember how they call but he explains not in a a billion of variables uh building up to what exactly you well he laid down some i don't know a couple of layers of different influences on uh, on your behavior in a specific second so how your um how your hormonal uh, um patterns are in the exactly moment what's your cognitive state in the exactly moment how your your endocrine patterns uh, the day before how did this lead how until uh, uh, what was your upbringing what culture you were yeah. what is your evolutionary history what was your ancestors doing which species like so the whole thing the whole thing uh it's an influence on that particular particular decision that you're going to make on that exactly second yes and that's what is saying like it's a lack of free will but it's not deterministic to the point of wanting lead to the other so i i i think uh, saposky has a, a little bit of a bar um um i don't i'm clear That's yeah yeah concrete example concrete example yeah, yeah. no yeah. you're right No, because I think your explanation is clear, but uh, but I think he's a little bit more didact- didactic. On, It's on less his, esoteric. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. His example and is really good, so we can put it the link as well. It's a good, it's a good talk. It's always nice to hear to Sapolsky and uh, yeah, Sapolsky is really something. I mean, it's it's amazing because we're really a fine-tuned chemical balance, and everything we eat, everything we breathe in. I mean, even the air. Uh, is impacting our decisions. Somebody could have said something different to you before you walked into this room, mm-hmm. and your mental state could be different. Yeah. And that's really phenomenal. And yeah, explaining it the way the way he does is a really good point because there's there's so many factors, some larger than others, each that place a constraint on the outcome. Mm-hmm. Like the the thing that's placing the largest constraints is the fact that we're humans, yeah. right? <laughs> and that's yeah. the evolutionary history. And the smaller constraints are how much I slept last night. But still, these could have huge variations in in the outcome. But 
it's still that when you look at the largest factors, they are impacting it the most. I'm not going to start shouting and climb a tree and then fling my feces. It's just very unlikely. Um, but I will maybe say something that humans also say. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's also really the, the set of constraints that we place based on the variables we look at. It, they're drastically different in weight. But so being a Republican or, or, or a Democrat, <laughs> it's a sum, maybe a multiplication or an exponential uh, outcome of all of those variables that are playing together, right? But isn't there anything driving it towards one direction or the other? Yeah, because the with something like political identification, everybody has their own version of what the political identity is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. So the, the, the set of beliefs that are required for me to actually accept one political ideology or another are drastically different. There's a huge sort of nebulous set of beliefs. It's just that they collapse on a decision because of based on what's available. And that's what's so toxic about a two-party system mm-hmm. is that I have to vote for one or the other, even though the beliefs can be so widely distributed. Not that a not that a uh, parliamentary system is is the best system out there, but it's definitely better than than a two-party system where you have forced choice, worse, like horrible or worse, you know? <laughs> yeah, but very often um, there is this phenomenon of two parties even when you have 20 in a country two parties get to get to 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 polarize uh, opinion right so um you end up within the box in this sense uh because you are you are voting or you are supporting a specific party but it's mostly because you don't like the other one and then you are already within the group of that party because you have coalitions yeah but and I, i think that coalitions are automatically an improvement they're yeah. again they're not perfect but they're definitely improvement on the two-party system but it, it's just hard to 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 isolate now in my mind um ideas of identity based on i don't like it because most of the people don't like stuff and that's what how, how they build <laughs> Uh, a political uh, identities, then I the, then the, the 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 idea of like I I I am this identity because I like that. Like I don't know. Maybe I'm very being very personal now because um, because in Brazil we have um, you know or even I'm being personal because of my political uh, identifications. And um, I would support the party, um, even though I I don't I'm not happy with that party. So I think I I have the hunch that a lot of people go on that direction. But perhaps perhaps the the people that actually likes the party that I don't like would classify me within the other side. Like so. Even though I don't like that party, I am supporting that party, and therefore I am in that box. So there is only there is plenty of parties. There's plenty of people doing stuff. They don't have they they all not have the same power. So you have to side up with a with a coalition with with a, a group that's powerful enough to do not uh, um, to prevent the uh, a group that you don't like to to come up. And then in the supporting of this group, you become this group. You become the identification with it, 
the prototype of, of, of a member of that group. And so even when you have multiple parties, you end up with two, two groups struggling for power because of coalition formation. Yeah, I think that, that definitely happens. Um, there, there is something where when we look at our social identities, there is an in-group and out-group. And one of the critical problems is that we don't like nuance. Just mm. most human beings don't like nuance. So we don't like the idea that there are more than two options. So everything tries to be reduced to a binary. Mm. So the more we understand that uh, outcomes are not necessarily binary, that there's a lot of nuance to a particular decision, even if, say, the outcome is binary, I vote, I don't vote, or I vote right or left, mm. that the decisions going into it are very nuanced. There can be a whole different set of beliefs. And the interesting thing is you can have people supporting a particular party and be on the fence um, about which party to choose. And you can have people supporting a party who are much further in one direction, left or right, than the two parties that are available. Mm -hmm. So the these sort of broad tent parties where they include a whole bunch of people in a wide spectrum of politics um, creates this illusion that you have um, in some degree more political opponents than you actually have and then to some degree less political opponents than you actually have. Because in, in some sense, there are some people who are even farther from your ideology who vote for the other party than you would even think of. It's just that they're the only party to vote for. Mm -hmm. So like in, in my sense, I'm, I'm much farther left from the existing political parties in the United States but if somebody says, who are you voting for? I don't vote for the Democratic Party. I would vote for the Green Party. But if somebody, there are plenty of people on the left or equally left who vote for the Democrats out of a sense of pragmatism against the right wing, they would get lumped in with the Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Democrats' flaws are things that they are viewed as being tolerant of. And this is also the interesting thing, uh, is that it reduces politics to a small set of issues that people find more salient. Um, and this is... This is highly problematic in terms of how we look at identity. Because when we look at identity, what we ought to be doing is considering a wide range of beliefs. And we don't want to reduce beliefs to, to very simple sets of terms. We want to actually understand that individuals are very broad, very complex. Uh, we want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And this is, I think, more than anything else, what breeds empathy, which mm -hmm. we lose when we reduce people to numbers, which we say we don't want. Mm -hmm. But we do. And and that's that's a critical thing, is we have to take every number and put the human bits back in and understand that it's a human, and then we can sort of build empathy. Because there are going to be beliefs that we have that we share. But could that be that there is a hierarchy of identities and there is, above all, just an in-group, out-group? Well, what do you mean? I mean, humans navigate many different layers of social groups, Right. And we can identify ourselves in relation to the other person. What is the, the, the social environment that we are operating on? So we can, we can dress different identities depending on where we are. But in, so, so we have to have this capacity to hold multiple uh, identities, maybe even with conflicting beliefs within this um yeah yeah like you can you you, you can you you can you can i don't think so yeah well 
I, I don't think you hold conflicting identities. Yeah, I, no, no yeah. conflicting identities. Okay, conflicting beliefs. Like a scientist, they're super religious. I I don't think that they're conflicting beliefs. I okay. think that from our interpretation of their beliefs, can seem they can make it seem like they conflict. Hmm. Right, and but I think that they probably have some process of integration with those with those beliefs. I can behave in some way like they're to bring back the election example because I think it's really easy is I can say I'm pragmatic and I believe that pragmatism is the most important so I can vote for a party that doesn't believe what I believe and so somebody from the outside could say well they have conflicting beliefs because they're voting for this party but they say they believe these things mm -hmm. but the person who's making that vote can actually prioritize other things that they think makes it worthwhile to vote for that party for mm -hmm. yeah, right? no no I get it and so that's not a conflicting belief or a conflicting identity Yes, there is a prioritization. They're, exactly. Yeah, I, I get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Beliefs that. are definitely relatively prioritized relative to one another. You, you can be religious and still go to the doctor and get medicine sure. if you, and, and you can still pray. And it depends on your religious belief. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but but that was not the point actually. The point was that I was thinking that may, maybe on the top of the identity is the identification of there is. A in group and an out group, even though if we have all of those social uh, uh, um, environments that we have to operate, above all of them, there is a, a higher idea of of the self, which which puts me in direct opposition to like a, a binary definition of me and the other that I am not. So that's because because what I'm trying to get to is the existing of the polarization in itself. Why do which I I think is because of the way how power works, because how how power transits from 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 within political not political parties political parties but like uh, uh, groups and coalitions. So how, how, how the way that the power e operates within groups leads to uh, a polarization of, of, of power. Um, and that's reflected in a way, it could be reflected on the way that we build identities on, well, I can be, I can have the identity of being a good son, a, um, a funny friend, uh, a loving spouse, um, a good student, uh, holding all those identities together. But uh, above all, I know that I am not a Republican. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Just like I know that I'm not that kind of person because there is only my kind of person and the other kind of person. I don't know. Probably, probably what I'm saying, it's completely bunkers. It doesn't make any sense. But I'm trying to figure out if there is anything that leads to a... a um, a modern categorization or like a, um, I don't have a better term, uh, a master umbrella on which, okay, that's, that's where I should start as defining myself. Then from here I can, I can go, I, I can go a little bit more, uh, uh, I, I can accept more variation, but on, on the, the first, root here on the first or first uh, the, on the trunk here on this division I, I'm not going to accept any deviation from here and then from here I can go somewhere else you're saying like the most prioritized belief yeah, yeah. and and I guess my interpretation is 
do does everybody share the same domain in which their most prioritized belief lies? So does everybody believe? And I don't I don't think that's necessarily the case because there are a lot of apolitical people, right? I think that there are a lot of people who don't engage with politics. So I think I think everybody does have beliefs which are more prioritized than others, uh, obviously. Um, but I think a critical component is that um, the the beliefs that we maintain that are most prioritized are going to be the beliefs that we also engage with on a daily basis. So mm-hmm. you can go from apolitical to highly politicized just by engaging more with political environments and then all of a sudden beginning to prioritize the beliefs that you think are achievable by maintaining political beliefs. So I believe people should have access to education and healthcare, and I think that being politically engaged is the best way to achieve this. And so all of a sudden those beliefs become more prioritized. I can also believe that politics divide people and therefore all I have to do to be a good person is go to work every day, provide for my family, and make sure I'm a good person in my immediate environment. And so th- these two people would have completely different, highly prioritized beliefs, right? One is to re- remain apolitical, one is to remain political. Um, so I think that, that in that sense, I don't think there's an overarching, highly prioritized belief that everybody shares. Yeah, no, but that's, yeah, I, I, I think we focus a little bit on the political kind of identity, and that was, that was not the focus. I give some examples of how, how you could define those identities. You could have the identity of that you are a highly achieving working person. And then that's your identity, you know? And, and here I am not negotiable on, on, on changes. So it's, it's like a hierarchy of beliefs, but for the identity. So I am, uh, um, I am a uh, Huberman and I am not negotiable on how, uh, uh, um, uh, dedicated or, uh, you know, is the kind of person that I am or, you know, like, or, or I am the best father. I don't know. Uh-huh. You know, so, so, that's, so everybody has a belief that's most prioritized. Yeah, exactly. So that's, sure. that's, yeah. that would be the, the, but we could, we could frame identity like that as well. I think that's exactly the same exactly as the same. Uh, beliefs are prioritized relative to one another, right? Mm-hmm. I, unless you're seeing a, a different, um, no, 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 no. I, I, I know that you use you're you're using um, what we're calling identity and and belief uh, interchangeably. I just wanted to to remark it that we are talking because I wanted to to bring it and to 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 more concrete examples of of how of, of identities and and and, and real world. Um, examples, just just see, just see, examples. So so, um, was thinking um, how, for example, how this, at least from my perspective, uh, I have the impression that some people build highly superficial um, identities um, online, for example. Um, um, you know, on uh, just being an in- some kind of influencer that has this, um, well, kind of like we can least attribute there, like, uh, oh, I'm charismatic or I'm funny, and uh, but but in the end, it's not a very meaningful kind of identity, but just entertaining. Uh, and maybe you really ha- like it- it's 
obviously some people can just build this for the social interaction within uh, um, a content uh, uh, creation platform, you know? So they just like, yeah, I'm acting to be this, this, this person there. I am not this person in a daily life, but we actually meet some people in a daily life that have kind of identities, which are like, uh, seem to be a little bit superficial on their engagement with uh, the rest of the social environment, their engagement with uh, um, big issues or the engagement with, we can have identities that are superficial in their engagement with, with their own families and, or whatever you, you can take. But, but yeah, I, I, I was thinking that we could talk a little bit about this uh, frivolity or superficiality of, um, of of building for yourself an identity that's dissociated with uh, what probably me and you would would consider um, important matters. So I think that there's a there are two differences. One is um, the identity that you maintain versus the persona that you can build. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a, uh, an important thing to distinguish. It's yeah wise to bring it up is that we can build a persona which is not the identity that we incorporate into who we are, mm-hmm. but it's just something that we put out into the world. And I think that social media influencers, uh, social media personalities, media personalities in general, politicians are building personas. Mm-hmm. And so there's something that we perceive as inauthentic and that that's just a natural repercussion to the desire to appeal to a very large amount of people mm-hmm. rather than the, the small people in our social group. We can maintain identities that are very specific um, within the social groups that we maintain because there are going to be a small number of people, say a thousand of them in our immediate social environment that we can engage with regularly, just a couple of hundred even. But when we want to engage with tens of thousands, with millions of people, we ought to build personas because those personas are devoid of any of the substance that identities actually have. Like the politicians, the media personalities, the influencers, they're not full individuals in terms of the way we see them. They're just personas. But that's not the point of building um, or, or to, to having a, an identity, to be liked, to be accepted within a group or within a social environment. I don't think that they're trying. Un- there, there's, there are two things there. One, if I'm trying to be an influencer because I think that that the validation I might get from people that I meet in the street or just the money is going to improve myself and who I am, mm-hmm. then, that's, then that's one thing, but they're still building a persona to achieve that. Mm-hmm. There are people that throw themselves fully into it, and I think that that's probably unsustainable. I think that you, if you are, you're gonna have a very difficult time um, putting your whole self into a very large media personality, uh, you might suffer consequences in that the feedback that you're going to get is going to be highly targeted at you. And so people build personas to shield themselves from that damage. Mm. Um, again, it appeals to more people and in appealing to more people can also, ha- also has the potential to be more popular. Mm. I think that this is a really important thing. Um, that, that persona identity split. You can also have situations where the thing, the interactions that somebody has in their environment, with their friends, with their coworkers, with their families, can be purely instrumental. Meaning, mm. 
I interact with my family because they're the family that I have and I don't really care about them. Um, but say they feed me or something, in which case the belief in the importance or the incorporation of those people into your identity is very minimal. Mm. But you do believe that they have some kind of benefit for you. So some kind of material importance that you attribute to certain people. And this is our engagement with coworkers, right? I mean, the, and I think that's pretty transparent is that with most coworkers, we're engaging with them because we want a hospitable working environment. We don't need to have a deep sense of belief, nor do we need to build a persona. Uh, and the people who build personas at work are usually like, why are you behaving in that way? Mm -hmm. You know, it seems so transparent. Uh, but yeah, because I, I, yeah, I think the points you bring up are really important. There are different ways that we navigate with our environments. It's not necessarily the identities that we're maintaining though. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I get it, I get it. What are outcasts then? What are misfits? People that build identities for themselves, which are within the helm of inconformity. Yeah, I think something to keep in mind anytime we're talking about anything is again, a distribution of, of likelihoods. I don't think that every human being is exactly the same. I think that this mechanism is how most human beings have functioned throughout most of human history. But there are going to be certain exceptions to that rule where certain mechanisms, certain driving factors aren't necessarily functioning in the same way that they normally do. I mean, you can take um, psychopathy, for, for instance. Um, there's a, an estimation that something just under 1% of all human beings Are, are psychopaths. Uh, and just to clarify, psychopaths, sociopaths, very different things. Um, the Typically, people ascribe sociopathy, they call sociopathy psychopathy, but they're very different things. Sociopathy is the typical thing when people are like, oh, this person is getting pleasure from other people's pain, uh, they're torturing people, this type of thing. That That's all sociopaths. Um, torturing insects, also usually sociopaths more than psychopaths. The psychopath is somebody who is not experiencing empathy. It is a very clearly defined thing. It has a much more, uh, much better description um, than that. But the basic way to think about it is um, when you look at the person who sort of pioneered the definition of psychopathy, the psychologist named Bob Hare, um, which interestingly enough, his psychology checklist matched with the neurology checklist, sort of like the neuroendocrine Uh, profile of of psychopaths seem to seems to really fully align with the um, the psychology test he created. But basically, it, it's people who don't who don't perceive empathy in others. So that turns out to be something like um, I am very self motivated. I do not. Uh, I can dis display things like trait narcissism, even though I'm not technically a narcissist. It's just that I don't I don't believe or attribute. Um, a deep or meaningful inner experience to other people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of CEOs are probably psychopaths, in my opinion. Probably people who are very high up in the war industry, probably very successful politicians have some degree of psychopathy. I think that this is probably the fact. And so these, I just bring that up to say, they're definitely outliers in the functioning there. I think that maybe if we spend time, we could think about how to interpret what identity looks like for people like this. But I think that definitely um, there are some major public figures, probably people like, um, relevant to us, Bolsonaro and Trump, who probably what we're experiencing when we look at them is uh, a psychopath loose in the world because they seem to only be interested in the self-benefit. There doesn't seem to be a capacity for empathy. You can sort of suppress that, 
but it doesn't. It seems like uh, some people definitionally are are in fact psychopaths. So that they, if we have any candidates in the in the public sphere, they're better candidates than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not exactly what I had in mind when I said right. misfits. Cool. But it was super interesting what you just said. Yeah, I you just got me thinking. But uh, yeah, if you wanted to know, I was when I mentioned misfits. What I mentioned is a, a lack of conformity within the the bigger group or any kind of group that you can find around yourself, which is what I expected you to say or to go through is that that's not not that's never actually the case, and especially now that we have internet and we can have groups which are not physically around us, uh, that's even less the case. Right? So we can identify ourselves with groups of people who are spread all around the world. But... It's a really important point. Um, but I, I was just thinking about the misfit as a group itself. So identifying yourself as non-conformed with the social rules, the social group, uh, which is the majority or which is the normalized, just puts you inside of another group. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. If you if your group of friends are the misfits, then you aren't misfits at all. You have your own group. You have your own group, yeah. And I think, like you said, the, the internet is a critical vehicle for extreme beliefs because everybody around you can say, that's not something I'm going to tolerate. This sort of self-censorship that we're able to do because the we curate one another and we also let people know that things are not okay, behavior is not okay, um, that certain uh, types of speech are not okay. We, we do that with one another. And this is sort of the micro conformities that we engage in. Kids do this as well. They're like, that wasn't funny or they'll make fun of somebody for something. And then the person will adjust their behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I make a joke and a lot of my friends are uncomfortable, I'll say, well, maybe I shouldn't make that joke anymore. I could do that. Or I could say, oh, well, I'm going to hang out with these other people who think this joke is funny. Mm-hmm. And so there's this sort of curation. If if I'm making jokes that are so not funny to everybody around me, uh, I'm, I might just go on the internet and I'm going to find somebody who <laughs> finds that funny on the internet. And that's the really interesting thing about it. And yeah. people create groups like that. And that's like incel culture, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, incel culture is a phenomenon. Um, incidentally, grew out of a female blogger who is talking about just her involuntary celibacy um, obviously wasn't right wing, and then was this idea was taken over by you know right wing teenage boys, um, and and that that's a really interesting thing. And I think when people hit critical thresholds of a lack of acceptance, I think that is when they turn to violence. And I think this is why this is what like pushed my initial interest in research with extreme beliefs. Um, is that when when people get to such desperate places where they're not receiving any validation they go to they go to violence and this is this is the case the united states is a hotbed for this right because mm-hmm. as we become more polarized we're also letting more and more people fall through the cl- cracks and we have these ridiculous laws that a uh, lack of laws around around guns. Um, so anybody who's feeling really ostracized looks at the political environment. The political environment is getting more hostile. They're left more in the middle, basically abandoned without a group. And then they they look to extreme sets of beliefs who are the only people giving them validation. Mm. And the only the only groups that 
provide excessive amounts of validation because they're so they're so um, incoherent. Our our views of extreme misogyny, extreme patriarchy, extreme um, xenophobia, extreme racism. So these types of things attract these very very lonely, typically um, white young men who have a lot of testosterone and a lot of feelings and feel rejection with a whole lot of pain, which is how when they write manifestos, they talk about the physical pain that they're experiencing from loneliness. They pick up a gun and they go kill people. And this is the this is the greatest oversight and tragedy of, of um, I'd say, the, the contemporary American social sphere, but also extends far beyond where we have copycat sort of instances. We just had a recent one in the Czech Republic um, mm-hmm. at the university mm-hmm. in Prague. It was a guy who was inspired by American mass shooters. I mean, so this is, this. there's no way you can ignore the problem uh, and think that high polarization and um, ostracism of people is going to solve any types of problems. So we need to, we need to, in a sense, readjust how we put boundaries on people's behavior and be a little more empathetic, sympathetic, even when what they're saying and doing is really difficult to digest. Yes, I think I, uh, yeah, I agree with you. That's, that's, I think there is a lot to unpack there. Because, yeah. um, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to, to, to do. Uh, I, it seems very pathologic because um, we see what happened to the majority of people who who actually take actions like that that you 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 mention, and they mostly die. So what happened is that they mostly they die. They die. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's hard to when I see this kind of behavior, it's always complicated to to make sense of them in the sense of uh, of attributing to it any function, any any kind of sense on an evolutionary perspective of um, of yeah, like that's that's expected. That's well, obviously we can talk about uh, Durkheim's suicide ideas and, and altruistic suicide. Uh, egoistic suicide and things like that, uh, but um, it may be f- for another talk. But um, yeah, I think it's just that we're yeah yeah definitely for for another talk as well. Okay. But I think when we when we experience frustration, we th- and this core part of identity is that we there's some kind of motivation to engage with the world. We want to not just perceive the world, but also shape the world to a degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that this. This requirement is satisfied in the most uh, fundamental sense through social interaction for humans, mm-hmm. which is why um, solitary confinement is so damaging. Mm-hmm. There's no world that we can engage with. And it, it creates situations where people actually go insane. Mm-hmm. So people lose their sanity because they're not able to in- interact with and engage with their environment. So this ability to learn through engagement is so fundamental to who we are and how we function that we need to really build that back into the cornerstone of our understanding of people. We've built it, unfortunately, we've built a deep understanding of that, unfortunately, in, in the worst parts of humanity, which is doing things like solitary confinement, 
which is probably some of the worst torture that you can do because you're destabilizing, deconstructing the mind of an individual, mm-hmm. right? But the if we reintegrate that into our understanding of, of healthy lives, how important learning is, how important validation is, social interaction, I think we'll, we will also not just use it to the disadvantage of people, but use it to the advantage of people. And that's mm-hmm. really important. Yeah, it makes me think that maybe there is an important component on identity which is enable you uh, agency. Definitely. Right? So whatever whatever you are, whatever you 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 define yourself by it has to have some kind of power to 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 create something or to move something yeah around you on your social environment yeah one of the and and when you look at when you look at manifestos like incels um like white nationalists what they're talking about is the lack of agency i mean literally yep. involuntary celibate is i have no agency over my sexual prowess yep. uh and why that turns into misogyny is they're like well women seem to have full control over my ability to be fulfilled and there's this misogynistic idea of looking at other human beings as objects that you have privileged access to that you're being denied this is like the fundamental idea of of incel culture and and they feel like they've lost control and other people have control you know these chads mm-hmm. and stacys like incels call them and in, with white nationalism it's that we are being white white people are being replaced and that the power that white people have is being lost to mm-hmm. people of color and so the the whole idea is that there's people feel like they are losing power and they need to act and so this is the idea is well i don't get to engage with i have no autonomy uh, or agency over my environment so what i'm going to do in a final act is is have that agency Mm-hmm. And I'm going to punish people in the same way that a child lashes out when, because they can't express their ideas. Um, they might lash out violently or start screaming and crying because they're not being understood. Mm-hmm. The adults, adults do this all the time, either by physically fighting uh, or in the most extreme cases, like what we're talking about, um, going and attempting to end the lives of other people. And it's, not, it's rarely random. The, the people that they attack are the people that they feel that they've lost agency uh, from. Mm-hmm. The, the people that they feel are are infringing upon their agency. Yeah. So, uh, summary that what we have been talking is um, the ways that identity are built could be, could, we could list first group appraisal or just the, the, the perception of being included within this group. Um, now, Uh, capacity of your identity providing you agency mm-hmm. and well, belonging to the group uh, the belonging is already uh, um, avoidance of ostracism and we mentioned something else in this conversation now so there's agency this group belonging um, there's the beliefs we maintain and there's also the idea that we didn't really mention as a phrase but is core to a lot of the topics we're talking about which is the maintenance of someone's self-concept. So my conception mm. of myself... Consistency. Yeah, is something that I try to maintain. So mm. I try to maintain a positive conception of myself mm. and I avoid negative conceptions of myself. And I think that 
a core thing of what we see when people are depressed is that they maintain a negative conception of themselves and it's very difficult for them to get out of that cycle. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the core features of, of depression, whereas very more fulfilled or happy people maintain very positive conceptions of themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's a degree of, of external influence on that conception of yourself, but a lot of it is belief-based and internal. Mm-hmm. There, there, there are people who are depressed who maintain that negative conception of themselves who are in environments that are supportive. And so there's this aspect where it's not in your hands whether you your maintenance of your self-concept is positive or negative. There's some people who nobody likes, but they think they're great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that this is, again, yeah, yeah. lack of free will. <laughs> yeah, but there's something else about the heterogeneity within the group itself. So uh-huh. there, there, would, there might be reasons on which you, you would maintain an identity or build one if you wanted to achieve a higher status within a specific group. The same token, there are people that conform to identities within a group on which they are actually on the bottom of it. Hierarchically? Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's strange, right? That's uh, Depends what it affords you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. depends. Yeah, if, if the, the outside option is worse yeah. than being within the group, you, you would accept to be in the lower position as long as you belong somewhere, right? So that's belonging again. Yeah. But you could be motivated to to maintain a social identity or even promoting it if you are at the top. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, and there, there are cases where the, the organizations or the groups that we're part of are not things that we incorporate into our identity, but the benefits we get aid our identity. Think working for a corporation that we don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it helps me, it gives me agency to work for the organization because that gives me money, maybe some status, maybe some prestige, but maybe I don't like the group at all and I don't like to associate with it. So I think that there, there's also the element of that where there's an instrumental engagement with, with certain groups, some formal, some informal, which might provide me something externally uh, for my identity. Mm-hmm. So identity make us feel hugged? <laughs> make us feel hugged? Yeah. <laughs> it make us feel powerful? It, it can, yeah. I guess it depends on what we believe. It make us feel... Um, less alone identity itself yeah um, make us believe that we are that's that's what i'm implying and we follow this statement oh i see what you mean i see what you mean yeah, yeah, yeah. like um maintaining an identity we can believe these things yes, that yes. we are less alone yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, make us believe that we are more powerful uh-huh. um make us believe that we are on the right side of history yes make us believe that we are good people. Yeah. The, the the motivations that we have to to maintain those beliefs. Yeah, and beliefs are beliefs are a crazy thing. I, the, we can we can believe that we are a part of something and that part of something that we uh will will make us feel like we extend much beyond our individual lives. Right? From joining a, a social group to contributing to science to having child it's like I am extending my existence beyond the the temporal parameters of 80 years, beyond the physical spatial compa- uh, parameters of this body, mm-hmm. you know, and that that's really an amazing thing that identity allows us to do. Yeah, that's super. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I don't know about you. Yeah, we might have to wrap it up. Yeah, we are on. Yeah. All right, right on. Cool. All right, until next time. Till next time.